We're back from the long holiday weekend on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We have a full house. I'm Chris Quinn with Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Lisa Garvin. I hope you all had a marvelous Thanksgiving weekend. Yes? Yes. Mm -hmm. It was lovely. I got to tell you, the thing that blew me away this weekend is I watched the Beatles thing by Peter Jackson, the Get Back, blown away, the most illuminating window into the creative process I've ever seen. I still can't believe how powerful it was. I hope people watch it because it really shows you something about those four guys. Let's begin. What do we know about Lake County Commissioner John Hammercheck, whose name came to the fore involving an attempt to infiltrate the Lake County Election Board's computer system? Layla Corey Schaefer dug into this and found some very interesting and unusual details about Mr. Hammercheck. He definitely did. This story makes you wonder, what the heck is going on in Lake County that has allowed this guy to get elected? I mean, so so this Lake County Commissioner, Hammercheck, he's been in the news lately because it appears someone air quotes, someone used his security badge to swipe into the offices of the county commissioners several times during the period when it appeared someone had taken screenshots of information from the county's computer system and then leaked it to the organizers of the cyber symposium that was supposed to be all about the 2020 elections fraud conspiracy theories. You know, Mike Lindell, the founder of MyPillow, plays a role in this. Well, reporter Corey Schaefer did a deep dive on Hammercheck to figure out who is this guy and found this crazy story that is, frankly, stranger than fiction. He once worked as a radio technician in the in the county telecommunications office until 1995 when he was convicted for stealing a $250 power drill from a local hardware store. In in his defense, he said that he had forgotten to pay for the drill because he suffered a head injury in 1989 in a helicopter crash while he was also working for the county. So <laughs> the story of the helicopter crash goes like this. It was October 1989. He and, and county engineer Tom Gillis took a county-owned helicopter to test the county's radio communication system from 500 feet in the air for some reason. Gillis piloted this this helicopter, and a National Transportation Safety Board investigation found that Gillis felt the helicopter vibrate in the light wind after reaching 500 feet. He overcorrected. He sent the helicopter into a tailspin, and they crashed into the woods and burst into flames. Gillis lost his right foot, and Hammercheck broke several bones and suffered severe burns. A report ruled out any me- mechanical errors as, as a cause of the crash. They faulted Gillis, but they didn't take any action against him, in part because publicly owned aircraft and pilots weren't subject to the same type of regulations as commercial ones, which seems absolutely nuts, but I, I don't know, it was the 80s. So <laughs> when Hammercheck returned to the job after a two-year hiatus, he got a promotion to senior technician. His boss asked him to go to the hardware store to pick some stuff up for the county, and while he was there, he grabbed this drill and a battery pack for himself, and he basically put the drill and the battery in his truck without paying for it, the store called Hammercheck's supervisor, who checked his truck and found the drill. And when he was confronted, Hammercheck said, oh, I, I bought that at, at Sears. I didn't buy it at the blah, 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 you know, hardware store. He was charged with theft. But at trial, he said, well, I forgot to pay for it because I got caught up in this conversation with the store clerk. And then he said he had some brain damage from the helicopter crash. He was convicted. But but wait 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 wait. Don't, but, but, as I read <laughs> wait, it, so wait, you he mean had something a bunch doesn't of stuff. add up. Wait, something wait, doesn't add wait, up in the story. He, he had a bunch of stuff that he was buying, 
in addition to the drill and the battery. But he took the drill and the battery, put it into his truck, and right. went back in and went paid in, for the other paid stuff. Paid for it that, with that, the county's then, dime. And then, then you left. can't say, I had a brain lapse, right? If you have a bunch of stuff and you take two of the items out to your truck and then go in and pay for the rest, that shows intention. Well, and it was a bump like on there the wasn't room on the counter, years. so I put it in my <laughs> truck instead. Yeah, <laughs> That's what he said. bizarre. Yeah, well, you know. And and maybe the bump on his head is is uh, also is to blame for his his uh, friendship with Mike Lindell of My Pillow. I don't know, but <laughs> so he was. Well, conf- what, yeah, go on. Well, what's bar? And we talked about this last week. But what's bizarre is that the stuff that was recorded from the computer, from the infiltration of the computer, was just a couple of electronic devices talking to each other. Yeah, right. And then the My Pillow guy tries to make it sound like, look, proof of infiltration, which is complete and utter nonsense. So it's, you know, we talked about this to prove that the election system could be corrupted in Lake County. Somebody using Hammercheck's badge went in and tried to corrupt it and failed then stupidly provided what they got so the whole world would know about this failed attempt in in the my pillow guys nonsensical election theft theory exactly exactly i mean there, there's more to the story everyone should go read it on on cleveland.com Corey found you know evidence that hammer check is just super litigious you know suing madison village over legislation involving improving a firehouse when he was on village council suing yeah, he was on village council <laughs> yeah i know he sued his own council yeah. then he tried to go he into an to... executive session right. about how to defend the suit it's right. unbelievable i know i know he he also sued his own insurance company over at car accidents he's been in and and for trauma he says he suffered when he was working as a police officer directing traffic and when he almost got hit by a car doing that um, he doesn't cite exactly what his injuries were, but he got some kind of insurance payout from that. So, so he he's <laughs> well documented. So how did he get elected? How did he get elected? I don't know. I mean, maybe they're just these stories weren't public at <laughs> back then. I don't know. Maybe he, maybe it's just such Lake County. What's going on out there? Can I, can I, don't I know. add this? This Laura. is Laura. I feel like when people recognize a name on a ballot, they vote for them, right? So they're like, oh, I've read about this hammer yeah. guy. <laughs> I'll vote for him. I know. Well, he does adamantly deny. Well, he adamantly denies that any attempt was made to infiltrate the computers, which that's patently wrong because there was an attempt. But he's saying no wrongdoing, no wrongdoing. We'll have to wait and see what the federal and state investigations turn up. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How are members of the Cleveland City Council and the Cuyahoga County Council justifying they're exposing the general funds of their budgets to unforeseen shortfalls in the $435 million renovation of Progressive Field? Aren't the general funds the ones we use to pay for police, fire, child protection, trash collection, and other vital services? Laura, all these vital services versus a baseball game, and these councils are exposing that money to going to the baseball game. Yes, they are. This is the basic pot of money that pays government salaries and everyday operations. So it's not debt service, but it's you know basically what runs the government. And a few Cleveland City Council members have raised concerns about this, especially last week. The deal has not been approved through City Council yet, but their complaints haven't amounted to much, whereas Cuyahoga County Council already approved its end of the bargain, didn't really broach the issue during weeks of questioning, even though it's a much bigger deal for the county, the county has to provide $9 million every year 
for the renovations and 2.55 million of that is going to come out of directly out of the general fund. The city is making an $8 million contribution and the general fund's going to contribute at least $350,000 of that every year. It could be more depending on the revenue at a parking garage. You know, the in the past, the general thought was if you put a good team on the field or in the arena, then people will buy tickets and they'll pay to park. And the taxes off of those are the revenue sources that rebuild these things, that you use the hotel taxes, the sin taxes, the things that are directly generated by the fans coming to the game pay for it. When you start dipping into the thing that pays for police and garbage collection to pay for it, you're giving the team a walk. We, they can put stinky teams out there, and they're still going to get that guarantee. You're, you're removing the impetus for them to give the fans something worth watching. This is pretty shocking. They're arguing that they've done this before, right. and it, but, it, but not to this degree, man. This is like really exposing the general fund budget to some downfalls. And we know from last year, the Indians didn't have fans. So there were no admissions taxes. There were no parking taxes. It's not an unforeseeable circumstance that those funds will dry up and they'll be dipping into the city's general fund. Absolutely. I mean, apparently, there's a 2013 agreement between the, the Browns and the city for $120 million in the upgrades to the First Energy Stadium. The city had agreed to contribute $2 million from the general fund for 15 years. But at the same time as that, I believe that's near about when the syntax voters extended that. So that money kept on flowing and they thought that was going to expire in 2015. So I feel like that's a... A little twist there. County Councilman Michael Gallagher was the only vote on council against the progressive field deal. He said he tried to pro propose alternative funding to avoid tapping into this general fund, and he was turned down. Also, Mike Polensic on city council is a critic. He said, it was drilled into me as a freshman councilman. You've got to protect the general fund because in hard times, that's all you have to fall back on. I mean, he's pretty clear about that, and I, I think that he makes a really decent point. Whereas the county saying, even if everything else failed, we would be able to cover this. Sure, you'd be able to cover that, but you also need to pay for jail. You also need to provide these services. And nobody wants the worst case scenario. Yeah, and we'll see if Mike Palazzo votes against it. I, I'm impressed that the city council members who've spoken up, like Palencic and Charles Slife, have been outspoken about it. It'll be interesting to see if they end up voting for it. This is supposed to get voted on actually today, tonight. But man, oh man, I'm surprised that their cavalier exposure of the general fund to this. We've had bad times in the city. Frank Jackson in his early years as mayor had to deal with the recession that crippled the budget. The, the, there'll be tough times again. And what are you going to cut so that you can take care of the Indians instead of telling the Indians, hey, Put a real team on the field and people will come and pay for tickets and parking and all the other stuff that usually funds it. This is like a get out of jail free Plus, card if you for look a stinky at, team. If, you've, if they've tapped everything else, they've, they've tapped the admissions, the hotel tax cannot be raised anymore. The sin tax shrinks every year and they've already extended it. Like there's not another source of taxes, right? I mean, we already tax every single possible thing we could tax. So what, what happens the next time somebody comes and says, we need more money? Like where are they going to get it from? Yeah, this is an ugly development. I, I I get the idea, and I know lots of people say there should be no public funding of stadiums, but that's not the way it works. In, in America today, the public does fund the stadiums, but this is a huge change in the way we go about it, and this is an exposure 
to real services that, you know, are you going to lay off police officers so people can watch a baseball game? That could be what we're looking at. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Whatever happened to Blockland, which was posed a few years back, is the bright, shiny thing to build a future for Cleveland as a tech center. Lisa, it seems like Cleveland has a long list of these kinds of things that <laughs> pop up and everybody gravitates to it and says, oh my, it's the, it's the new idol. And then they go away and we barely remember them. So we went back and looked and said, hey, where is it? What did we find? Well, Blockland is, is very much in limbo, the future of Blockland, and there's really no standard bearer or you know, source of financing for this. Cleveland wanted to position itself as the center of blockchain, which is an electronic ledger. It's used a lot for cryptocurrencies, titles, licenses, and other things. We had two conferences here in Cleveland in 2018 and 2019, and they were going to build what was called City Block at Tower City. Of course, the biggest advocate for this, Bernie Moreno, he's a Cleveland-based business owner. He does own a blockchain company called Onum, but he's currently running for U.S. Senate. So he He's kind of busy. He doesn't have time to get the conference together and and raise finances for it. He really is hoping for somebody will replace you know, him as, as the standard bearer, but, and saying that we can't go backwards. But the question is, who's that going to be? Uh, Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer talked to uh, Josh Holmes. He's the CEO of a, of a locally based company called Lightspeed Hosting. And he says he's very willing to host future conferences, but he doesn't, he needs sponsors to underwrite this, this uh, effort. And then the question is, who finances it? The last conferences were had big sponsors, KeyBank and IBM being two of them. They they funded the previous conferences, but nobody has really stepped up for this. So this is may go the way of the medical mart. Um, some people have pointed out that um, we may have missed our window. I mean, other cities like Toronto and Miami have moved ahead with with blockchain technology and trying to build an economy around that. So I don't know where that leaves Cleveland, but it doesn't sound great. Well, Toronto was a model for what Bernie Marino was trying to do, and we knew they were ahead, but but through the sheer force of his will, Bernie Moreno got lots of people galvanized. They were going to do something in Tower City, and, and you know, and he, he gave it all up for this hopeless mm. dream he has of being the U.S. senator. I mean, that's not going to happen. And don't you have a responsibility once you launch people on this, once you go out and proselytize and say this is the future and put it all on your shoulders, don't you have a responsibility to see it through? Is this the kind of senator he would be as well, where he'd well, have it, a big it, idea and then later disappear? And maybe he's just like a magpie. He had a shiny object but saw a shinier object, that being the U.S. Senate seat currently held by Rob Portman. And he's saying we can't go backwards, but, you know, anoint somebody or, or do something. I mean, you know, he basically just dropped it like a hot potato. You know, the uh, one of the uh, candidates for uh, the county executive job, Lee Weingart, you know, says we should make Cleveland attractive to young tech people. And that's absolutely what we want to do. And we need to support those job creation efforts. But, you know, what he can do as a county executive if he gets elected, remains to be seen. Well, it just when you make a campaign like that, it takes staying power. You can't you mm -hmm. can't invest two years in it and then say, okay, I'm done. You, people believed in what you were selling. A lot of people lined up behind him, and a lot of money was spent, even by the state. The state invested in it. The state even allowed payments to be made by cryptocurrency at one point, and then he goes away. I mean, that's just not what you expect from somebody who wants to be a leader. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
Why is a group suing Ohio over the new congressional maps, asking the Supreme Court of Ohio to move the case along quickly? Layla, there's tight deadlines, but they seem like they're worried that the Supreme Court will dally. I think they have reason to be. It's the, the National Redistricting Action Fund, with the nonprofit run by former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder, is, is suing the Black Ohio Republicans' congressional redistricting map. They filed the suit soon after Mike DeWine signed the redistricting legislation that gives Republicans a, an unfair edge in, in 12 of Ohio's 15 congressional districts for the next four years. But the, now the nonprofit is, is asking the Ohio Supreme Court to, to expedite the case and wrap it up by early February so that they can have a ruling issued before the state's March 4th, 2022 candidate filing deadline. They've proposed a schedule that ends all discovery, depositions, and evidence submission before Christmas, and then having each side file their respective briefs in mid-January, then having the Supreme Court hold the oral arguments on February 8th. Alternatively, they're asking the court to push back the filing deadline and the May 3rd primary election. If the court strikes down the redistricting plan, state lawmakers have 30 days to pass a new plan. If they don't, the the Ohio Redistricting Commission will have another 30 days to pass a revised plan. And the NRAF is arguing that Ohio congressional candidates will need some time between a map being finalized and the filing deadline to figure out which district they're going to run in and and collect the the valid signatures for from registered voters that they need to run. Um, it, it, one of my favorite lines here in their brief, the NRAF says that if the court strikes down the maps, allowing an election to be held under that plan is akin to allowing Republicans to reap the bounty of the fruit of a poisonous tree. So DeWine and the other Republicans on the redistricting commission have until today to file their response to this proposed schedule. Well, I hope, I, I mentioned this before, I hope the Ohio Supreme Court, when they finally call these guys together, actually next week in the legislative map case, that they threaten them with contempt of court if they don't do their job. Yeah. You know, come back, do what the voters told you, or we're going to lock you up until you do. That might induce them. Put them in the county jail. Maybe even the Cuyahoga County mm. Jail, because you want to put pressure on people. <laughs> put them there. We'll see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Did Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan have the coronavirus over the summer? And if he really did, why did he keep it secret? Laura, this is weird. Almost every other person in Congress that's had the coronavirus has been public about it. Why did Jim Jordan keep it secret? Did he really have it? I mean, I, I, I have not seen Jim Jordan's health records, and so I don't know for sure. But he says that he has it. My guess is he doesn't want to have to talk about whether or not he's vaccinated. He's a very vocal public opponent of vaccine mandates. So his announcement to Spectrum News was really short on details. He said he had coronavirus last summer, that he has recovered, and that an antibody test shows his antibodies are, quote, strong. He didn't say how sick he got. He didn't. He did say he didn't feel well, but we don't know if he was hospitalized or quarantined or what kind of treatment he got. And he also did not answer any question about whether he was vaccinated, although he told Spectrum in early June that he had not gotten a vaccine. It's interesting that he I mean, it's almost like he didn't want to admit that he got it because it would be an admission that, that it his, exists. Well, and that he failed to, to get the vaccine and exposed himself to it. Oh, I don't know. Like, I feel like he doesn't want to tell anyone that he got the vaccine because he has so many supporters who are anti-vaccine and probably anti-mask. And a lot of them that probably thinks it's still a hoax that the COVID, you know, COVID isn't real. But I mean, it's very, very different from someone like Mike DeWine, who puts out a press release and cancels all 
public appearances, even when he's been exposed to COVID. Yeah, it's just it's a strange one from our very strange congressman, Jim Jordan, building the reputation of Ohio (laughs) one antic at a time. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Much of the nation is dealing with a shortage of Christmas trees, but are we seeing anything like that in Ohio? Lisa, it's hard to believe we could ever have a shortage of Christmas trees in Ohio, given how many farms there are here and how many are in neighboring Michigan. But this is a thing for most of the country. What's the story here? Actually, it is not a problem in Ohio. There is a plethora of Christmas tree farms, as you said, and they're all doing well. I have a friend in Worcester who lives right next door to the Pine Tree Barn Farm, and they've been seeing very brisk business and have plenty of inventory. It's mostly the bigger distributors that are having problems sourcing their trees, but the small family-owned farms are in good position. Um, prices are up very slightly, but not really noticeable here in Northeast Ohio. And let me tell you, when I was driving around this week and it seemed like every other car had a tree on its roof ready to take home, but I think people are freaking out just a little bit because they're reading about these shortages. So they're buying their Christmas trees earlier than normal. Cause if you keep a Christmas tree for a month, it's going to be pretty dry by Christmas day if you don't water it every day. So, uh, yeah, business has been brisk and it's been pretty good in Ohio. I wouldn't be surprised if there are some people that put their Christmas tree up the day after Halloween. It seems like <laughs> there's an early effort. What, Laura, when did you decorate your house for Christmas? <laughs> Wednesday. Oh, That's right. why I took the day off, so I could spend the entire day decorating. <laughs> and I you waited decorate before Saturday. Thanksgiving. <laughs> well, we didn't. We didn't host, so I feel like it's fine. And believe, I, I feel like Thanksgiving is just the kickoff. At you know, I mean. Santa Claus arrives on the the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. So that's true. Did you get a live tree then? No, I've never gotten a live tree. Okay, it's it's on my bucket list one time. Wow, and you're from Canada. (laughs) Yes, I'm from Canada, and my Canadian parents always had a fake Christmas tree. We went out and got ours on Friday, and I did not notice any any signs of a shortage among either the the trees that are being cut fresh or the ones that have been shipped in from places where they grow beautiful trees it seemed like they had ample supply also i walked through costco this weekend which was a giant mistake given the shopping (laughs) season but lots and lots of artificial trees for sale i i'm not sure i see it yet good thing this is not something that people can stockpile (laughs) (laughs) we want want i will say this though there's usually a couple tents that are set up along mayfield one's in front of a church and one's just kind of in a field and the tents are set up but there's no trees in the tent so i don't know if they're sourcing their trees locally or not but that was kind of a an ominous sign to see these empty sales places yeah so i'll have to drive by again today and see if they've been full up but they have not at all yet okay you're listening to today in ohio what is the latest effort by chn housing partners to help people with low incomes own homes this time on the west side of cleveland well it's 60 homes they're talking about which is not insignificant yeah, is CHN Housing Partners are, are they've already been in the process of moving families, low-income families into into homes. They plan on 60 as you said, building on scattered sites in the Detroit Shoreway and Cadell neighborhoods. It's part of the, a new version of a long-standing program that gives tenants the chance to buy their own 
home at a reduced price. Tenants can can receive $1,000 credit for every year they rent, up to $10,000. These are are developments of 30 homes each in batches on on the west side. They're built as part of this combined $17.8 million investment. The homes range from 1,300 to 1,400 square feet. The properties were previously held by by the Cleveland and Cuyahoga County land banks, and they, they basically acquire the land through tax and abandoned bank foreclosures. So so of the houses that are already built, 28 are two-story, three-bedroom homes, and two are single-story, three-bedroom homes for the disabled. And uh, to qualify, family income has to be below 60% of the area's, the area's median income. For a family of four, that's about $47,000. Rents are designed to be affordable for low-income families, you know, about about $700 for a house. It, and it gives the gives the chance for renters to become homeowners and includes financial counseling services during the time prior to potentially purchasing so, you know, this program stabilizes families, it stabilizes neighborhoods, all good things. Yeah, and if they rent, they get the discount, right? That's the way it works right, for every year right, they rent. Right. They, it's, so that's not a bad deal. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has caught flack from Greater Cleveland over the years for undervaluing the importance of dredging the Cuyahoga River. They didn't even want to do it for a while. So how does the work by the Corps in Cleveland compare to its work in other important Lake Erie tributaries? Laura, this all becomes evident because they put out this fascinating graphic that shows the work they're doing all around the lake. How do we compare? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Spring dredging of the Cleveland Harbor was finished in June, and they completed the fall dredging in October. Obviously, the whole point is to be able to keep keep it deep enough for those big lake freighters to be able to get through and deliver uh, steel and all sorts of stuff down the river. They are supposed to place about 250,000, I don't even know what it is, like <laughs> just tons of stuff from the bottom of the lake. And it supports the business of about $545 million every year. Sandusky, Fairport, and Conneaut Harbors actually did not get dredged this year because they don't have a placement site available because they cannot long they can't ever dump in the lake anymore. So they didn't get dredged. Toledo's dredging is ongoing and supposed to be done in December. And this is all through the Buffalo District that was responsible for 38,000 square miles including 16 commercial and 19 recreational harbors. So all that fighting that we did and the US senators from Ohio did and the governor did. I mean, we had so many different public officials beating on the Army Corps engineers to continue the dredging. It worked. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of the fight was over this lake dredging, the open lake dredging, because the Corps wanted to be able to pick up all the junk off the bottom of the river, all the sediment and everything else, and just dump it in the middle of the lake. And because we don't know exactly what is in that sediment, we didn't want to put it in the open lake and pollute it. So now they have dredging sites. I mean, that's how that dike got created that beautiful uh, nature preserve on the east side so i mean there is value to this if you put it in the right place and and treat it properly well it's good to see that they're investing seriously in the cuyahoga river you're listening to today in ohio how is an effort called project noir trying to change the fact that cleveland is rated as the worst major city in america for black women to live in Lisa, this is a story we put together over the weekend, some people trying to fight back against this very, very ugly mark on the city. Yes, there are two Cleveland women who are uh, 
part of co-founders of this group called Enlightened Solutions, and they're looking for, you know, uh, social change and so forth. Chenenye Nekamir, I'm probably massacring that name, and Bethany Studetink are the co-founders. And they took a look at the Bloomberg City Lab analysis, which ranked 42 large metro areas with 100,000 or more Black women in them to see what the livability index was. Well, Cleveland came in last overall out of those 42 cities and last in educational opportunities for Black women. It was also the second worst for health outcomes for Black women. So uh, these two women formed Project Noir. What they did was they gathered stories of 450 Northeast Ohio Black women. Out of that, they had 20 agree to do interviews so they could dive deeper. And what they found here locally, 30% of Black women were refused health care treatment. 56 were pointed to low-paying professions by their educators and counselors. 77% had inappropriate comments made on their appearance and also suffered from microaggressions. 41% told that they were told by their healthcare providers, providers that their issues were made up. And then 75% of those surveyed were paid less than their coworkers that had similar jobs. And they're saying that this leads to a lot of promising women of color leaving the Cleveland area. And we have to move now to invest in our future leaders in Cleveland. So basically, I, I guess their next step is to take this data and try to formulate some sort of uh, operational plan. But yeah, what they found was not pretty. Yeah, it's uh, it's just, it's amazing to me how often we rate poorly for this kind of thing, the health outcomes and the, and the job outcomes. It's just at some point you would think that all these efforts to make Cleveland a better city, we would stop being in the basement of the ratings. Uh, it, it's good to see somebody trying to do something about it. It's a good story by Julie Washington on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Well, by the time, a little bit after the time this is posted, we'll have a story on our site about another in the long line of major changes in Cleveland leadership. Check out cleveland.com after 11 o'clock. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening to this podcast.